0: Discontentment, or rather, contentment, which is the answer for discontentment. And this is going to be a two-part series, a two-part installment on discontentment. Why am I so unhappy? Why am I so unhappy? And I think this message applies to all of us, right? Whether you're young. It's funny, I was talking to... Uh, Brother Jordan on the way out the door, and he said, "This is a big problem that we have with our young people in our church is this very issue of discontentment." And then, you know, I told you before, I study subjects that I'm interested in, and so I'm more midlife, and I'm thinking, "Wow, I'm discontented. I'm not very happy sometimes about certain things." Right? You you reach midlife, and maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, Yeah, things didn't quite work out as you had planned, right? Uh, Troubles and financial things, and all sorts of things. And you find yourself asking, why am I so discontent? And you know, that's not the will for the Christian, right? To be discontent. We're to live contented lives. We're to live joyous lives. And we're to live victorious lives in the spirit. And then, of course, when you're older, you battle all sorts of health problems, and that can be discouraging. We think of what our, uh, what our pastor's wife is going through right now, right? And even pastor with his back. And many others in the church are elderly and they're, they're fighting these things. So I think it's a good time to visit this topic or maybe revisit this topic on contentment um, or discontentment, right? So as we do and as our custom is, if you would stand and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And we're going to look at the first six verses. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. As soon as I get a sense that everybody is more or less there, I'll start reading. All right, Hebrews chapter 13, 1 through 6. Verse 1: Let brotherly love continue, be not forgetful to entertain strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the precious word of God. And we just pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts now and help us to be contented people. To help us to realize that you and you alone are sufficient. You and you alone are all that we need in our lives. We just thank you and praise you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Alright, so, the, in the six verses that we just read, we read, we have an outline in those verses. We have three sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And the first sacrifice I'd like to, like to talk about is brotherly love. And we see that right in verse 1. Hebrews 13, 1. Let brotherly love continue. Now, brotherly love is to be present in our lives in the church. And it's inferred by the exhortation for it to continue. It must be present, right? Brotherly love must be present in order for it to continue. We find that brotherly love was present in in the early Jerusalem church, the first church, in Acts 2.45, in Acts uh, 4.34-35. The Bible says that, the wealthier Christians sold their possessions, sold their land, and they laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet for distribution to the poor saints of God, according, the Bible says, to their need. Examining additional scriptures about brotherly love is also instructful in understanding just exactly what God is talking about when he says, Brotherly love. Romans 12:10, the Bible says, "Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love." Well, what does that look like? The Bible goes on to tell us, in honor, honorable or esteem right? Honorable esteem are honorably esteeming one another and preferring one another. So showing deference or humble submission, where I don't necessarily force what I want or force my opinion. That I submit right to what somebody else might want to somebody else 's desires, first thessalonians four nine but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God, well, how so, through the inward work of the Holy Spirit to love one another, the thessalonians love for the brethren was so apparent, the Bible tells us it was so present in the Thessalonica Christians, they needed no further instruction from Paul on the subject, having been taught of God and fully submitting to the Spirit's teaching. Brotherly love is not only to be present, but the Bible says what? It is to continue. Brotherly love is to be abiding, enduring, and remain in us and among us Since we share in the same common bond, the same common union in the Lord, partake of the same particular special grace, and are in the same local church body. We are to love one another in this church. We are to express love, compassion, and concern. And we are to go even further, right? We are to go one step further and demonstrate that love and act upon that love towards one another. When love is sincere, when love is genuine, it is, as Gill said, active and laborious. It is a laboring love. So what does an active and laborious love look like? Let's look at it now. Well, an active and laborious love, number one, takes a genuine interest in one another. A genuine interest in one another. Fellowshipping. This is a two-way street, though, isn't it? Fellowshipping is a mutual exchange of the heart and mind. It takes two to tango, as they say. Sharing our lives, being willing to do that, being willing to open up, and being willing to share our lives with one another. It's hard to get close to someone who doesn't want want somebody to be close to them, right? Who doesn't open up and share. And it goes... Likewise to you, you have to open up and you have to share if you want to be close to people and have true friends in your life. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man that hath friends must show himself unfriendly? (laughs) Friendly! A laborious love works at building and maintaining friendships in the church. What are you personally doing to build friendships in this church? What are you doing to build them? What are you doing to maintain them? And don't look around at anybody else. Just think about yourself. Think about you. Right? What you are doing and maybe what you could be doing. Active and laborious love. What does it look like? Two. Providing counseling, guidance, admonishment, and that means warning. And reproof, that's correction, in love. We do all these things, right, for others, out of love. The motive is love. The motive is to help them. The motive is love for God, love for them. Amen? Amen? Number three, building each other up in the faith. Strengthening and sharpening one another in the Lord. Proverbs 27:17 says, Iron sharpeneth iron, and that is a fact. Iron blades rubbed against each other will sharpen each other. Iron sharpeneth iron. By the way, that takes a little bit of friction, right? To do that, doesn't it? To sharpen. Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. So this is kind of uh, uh, maybe hyperbole, right? This is like metaphoric language here. So what exactly does that mean? How do we sharpen each other? How do we sharpen each other? Through conversation. Through conversation. Discussing and debating biblical doctrine. Discussing and debating principles, biblical principles and applications. Teaching, instructing, stirring up, and exciting one another's gifts and graces. Number four, what does the active and laborious love look like? Exhorting and encouraging one another to serve God and to continue to serve God. We all need encouragement to serve God and to continue serving God. And to keep on keeping on for the Lord. I remember when I was a very new Christian, and Brother Dalton mentored me, and he encouraged me. Oh yeah, you can do this. Oh yeah, you can do that, right? And uh, we all we all need that in the Lord, and not just uh, not just new Christians, but those of us who are battle tested and battle hardened, right? We we all need that. I really appreciate you. I really appreciate what you do for this church. I really appreciate what you do for me, what you do for the Lord. Building each other up in the faith. Exhorting and encouraging one another. Amen? Number five, praying with one another. Praying with and for one another. I mean, there's been times when, like, I've been talking to Brother Matt about something in the church, and he'd say, let's pray. Right right there and then, just pray. Like, let's not... Let's, let's not put it off. Let's not forget about it. And you know what? Let's do it while you and I are together. Because I desire so much to pray for you. And he'll pray for me right there. And So that's how, what we need to be thinking. We need to be praying for each other. Number six, bearing one another's burdens. Which we just talked about prayer. Prayer is definitely a part of bearing one another's burdens. But it's not... The entire picture, right? It's not ex- it's not exclusive to other acts of love, or I should say, in exclusion to other acts of love. I'll pray for you, right? We say sometimes, right? I'll pray for you when we have the means or ability to also help in other capacities. We should pray for people, and we should also be thinking: hey, Is there anything else I can do to help that person? Is there anything else I could do to help that brother and sister in Christ? Amen? All right. um, Number seven, forgiving and forbearing one another. Forgiving and forbearing one another. I mean, if... You won't last in church long if you don't learn to forgive other people. You won't... I feel like saying you won't last in life long. You will last, but you'll be very bitter, right? You, you, and you won't be a very healthy person. But especially in the church, the, the church won't function unless we forgive each other, we forbear one another. None of us are perfect. We all have different personalities. Sometimes we clash. Sometimes we have different ideas, right, of what we want to do and so on and so forth. we have to learn to forgive each other. And we have to forbear each other to some extent. Maybe somebody is rubbing us the wrong way. We just have to forbear, right? Knowing that we rub other people the wrong way too. I don't rub my wife the wrong way, ever. But... (laughs) Uh, So exercising gentleness is what this is all about. Exercising gentleness kindness, goodness, the fruit of the Spirit to one another. By the way, this is how we actually grow in godliness, by putting the fruit of the Spirit to good use. This is how we grow in the fruit of the Spirit, by exercising it and using it. Love for the brethren is the fruit of the Spirit, manifesting Christ's likeness through us. And it is our duty, privilege, and blessing to walk in the Spirit in submission to the Spirit. It is essential and needful for our individual well-being, for our own happiness, peace, and edification, as well as for the church collectively. The church will not last long without love for one another. That the grace of brotherly love imparted to us at salvation, 1 John 3.14, so that we love the brethren, continues to be exercised frequently and we are ever increasing in it, even abounding in it. And it's interesting because when you see that word abounding in the Bible, oftentimes, it's, if, you, if you look it up in the Greek, it's super abounding. So much so, so much so, that our love for the brethren is a prominent characteristic in our life. Without brotherly love, our public profession of Christ is worthless, fruitless, and ineffectual. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-2 says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, I have the ability to speak all languages and have not charity, have not love. I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. I am profitless. Love, genuine love to God and man, which grows out of devotion to God, is the vital principle as Christians we are to live by. Love trumps all gifts and endowments from God. All gifts and all graces. Without love, we are nothing but noise, the Bible is telling us here. Our Christianity is profitless, vain, and empty, good for nothing. The spirit-filled, spirit-directed life is a selfless life and stands diametrically opposed to the self-life of the flesh. Sacrifice is pleasing to God. We said, number one, the first sacrifice is brotherly love. The second sacrifice is hospitality. And you'll find that in the very next verse, in Hebrews thirteen two, Hospitality. Be not forgetful, and that's where the emphasis is on this verse, in verse 2. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. The verse lays out the duty of all Christians to exercise hospitality to strangers according to our ability. What does that mean? How God has prospered us individually. In order to bring glory to God and be a blessing to others, Christians are charged to be not forgetful of hospitality, to not exclude hospitality to others, but rather follow after or pursue hospitality. So the picture is, is that this is something that we're focused upon and we're going after, right? We're chasing it down. Hospitality is not only for pastors or the wealthy or those who have, quote-unquote, the gift of hospitality, but for all Christians as God provides us the means and the opportunity. We need to be looking for opportunities to be hospitable, seeking them out, so that when God presents them to us, we recognize the opportunity before us. We see the opportunity for what it is the Bible tells us to be not forgetful to entertain strangers. Well, who are these strangers that the Bible speaks of? Strangers includes all persons who are known to us, especially of the household of faith, who are fleeing perseca- persecution for their faith, or who are distressed, afflicted, or otherwise in need, and have had to flee or leave their place of dwelling. And um, what comes immediately to mind is what's going on in Ukraine, and though Not all those people are obviously Christians. They are people in need, and our hospitality is certainly to extend to all people in need, but in particular of the household of faith, to to saints and other other Christians in the Lord. If we are commanded to be hospitable to strangers, which we are, that's what the Bible is clearly telling us here, if we're commanded to be hospitable to strangers, showing kindness to those who we don't even know, Perfect strangers. How much more generous should we be to those in our church family? How about our Christian friends? I mean, I think of uh, Sister Donna, right? She's technically no longer in our church family. She can say, well, you're not my pastor. You're not in our church family. You're not in my church family anymore. But she, what is she doing? She's, she's demonstrating She's, she's modeling this, what we're reading here, right? To show hospitality to other Christians, to other saints. Amen. Praise the Lord for you. <laughs> Romans twelve thirteen says, Distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Notice there's no qualification or exemption from showing hospitality to others. The Christian is to be a lover of hospitality. Regularly performing hospitality, pursuing opportunities to give and assist others in all matters of need. Food, clothing, shelter. Maybe it's not material things, but maybe it's just providing comfort or counseling or maybe it's direction, right, to maybe get help. Whatever the needs are, in a loving, friendly manner, without complaining. 1 Peter 4.9 says, Use hospitality one to another without grudging. In other words, without murmuring, without complaining, as if, our, as if helping our brother or the stranger is burdensome of our time or talents or resources. By the way, I think sometimes we don't help people, unfortunately, because... We're greedy, right? We're stingy with what we have. That kind of goes without saying, right? That that's sinful. That's covetousness. And we'll we'll get into that more as the lesson proceeds. But I did want to mention that because that's kind of one of those low-hanging fruits, right? What we do for the stranger, the Lord will regard and reward as done to himself. You know, when we help other saints, we have eternal rewards that wait for us. Yes, the motivation should be love to God and love to others. But God gives us a reward for that. He gives us heavenly rewards. Furthermore, God has often bestowed blessings upon his hospitable servants. Can you think of any in the word of God? How about Abraham in Genesis 18-1 or Lot in Genesis 19-1? They were blessed by the presence of angels, and in Abraham's case, Jesus Christ himself appeared in the likeness of a man when Abraham was in the tent door. You remember that? Abraham and Sarah were afterwards blessed with a child, and Lot's life was later saved by the strangers, right, that visited him. What we do for others, Jesus considers, is done unto him. Matthew 10, 40, And verse 42, He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones, that's the least of the saints of God, a cup of cold water only, in other words, the very smallest show of kindness, in the name of a disciple, in other words, because he is a disciple of Christ, because he's a Christian, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. The Bible goes on to say in Matthew twenty-five thirty-five: For I was in hungered and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Now this was not done unto Jesus, but one of his, one of his little ones, right? One of his disciples. When we show regard to one another because of our common relation in Christ, we express love for the Savior. We express love for the Savior himself. The Lord Jesus Christ. Sacrifices pleasing to God. Number one, we said brotherly love. Number two, we said hospitality. And then thirdly, Christian sympathy. Hebrews 13.3 Christian sympathy. Remember them that are in bonds. Those who are prisoners, persecuted and bound for the cause of Christ, as bound with them, the Bible says, as if you were a prisoner with them, or in the place of them. And them which suffer adversity, all types of affliction and injury, as being yourselves also in the body. We should be sympathetic to others because we also know what it's like to suffer physical pain and hardship. And it very well could be happening to us instead of them, could it not? Now this verse specifically speaks to the persecution of Christians that was occurring in Jerusalem in the early church in the first century. However, there is a general Christian principle taught here. To have pity on those, experience oppression, suffering, and affliction as if you were in the same circumstances, as if... What another person is going through, you are actually going through instead. Especially those in your church family and other Christians, though not exclusively. We are to model the compassion of Christ in our lives. This remembering that the Bible talks about here in verse 3, this remembering we are excited is to Incited to is to lead to action. Not simply thoughtful reflection upon someone's unfortunate circumstances. Like we do sometimes, right? Oh, that's too bad. And maybe we can't help with that particular thing, situation, but maybe we can. We are to provide relief to persons in bonds and various adversities by acts of kindness. Well, what can we do for them? We could pray for them. We can communicate with them. We can send letters, cards, emails, text. Snapchat. There's all sorts of ways to communicate, right? Although, if someone's in affliction, they might not have a cell phone. Right, Tate? Visiting with them. Reading the Bible with them singing praises with them, being a comfort to them, and ensuring their basic needs are met, as well as giving to them small comforts. Just little things to improve their situation, the difficulty of their circumstances. By being a thoughtful, dependable friend and companion to them in their time of need, so much so that you are helping the afflicted and distressed to bear to carry the weight of the load of their suffering, partnering with them. Now, when you hear me say partnering with them, automatically you probably think, oh, this is like the latest business guru <laughs> talk, right? Partnering, partnering with them, right? Let's partner and let's create synergies, right? All this stuff. But it is biblical. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 32-33, through But called to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, illuminated to what? The gospel, right? Enlightened to the gospel of Christ, you endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly why you were made a gazing stock or a spectacle, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly why you became companions. Well, what is a companion? It's a sharer. It's a share or a partner. While you became companions, while you became a partner of them that were so used, of those who were mistreated, afflicted, and tormented. That kind of makes you look at things differently, doesn't it? From when you're helping someone and they're kind of over there, and they're dealing with their own thing, and to being a part. Wait, I'm partnering with them. I'm putting my arm in theirs, and I'm going with them. We're going through this together. Different, right? First Corinthians twelve twenty-five through twenty-seven: that there should be no schism or no division in the body but that the members should have the same care one for another. And that's my prayer, that I would love others and have compassion for others as they have for me. Think about that. We're to care for each other in the same way. We're to love each other. Think, Think about maybe the most loving person in this church. Whoever that is. I think we're we're to all as one body to be like that. We're to care and love each other like that. But that the members should have the same care one for another, verse twenty six, and whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, and all the members rejoice with it. Not envious, not jealous but rejoicing. Amen? Verse 27, Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. Reminds me of that saying, right? All for one and one for all. Right? We're all in the Lord's church together. Right? Amen? The church body is to share in each other's suffering and rejoicing. So by now you're probably going, okay, Brother Joe, you went over these three sacrifices. Brotherly love, hospitality, Christian sympathy, but what in the world do they have to do with discontentment? We're bringing it all back right now to this topic. All back to the subject matter at hand. Unhappiness. And the root cause of unhappiness is discontentment. What do these Christian duties and sacrifices that I have mentioned have to do with my discontentment? If we are discontent with the present state, condition, and circumstances of our life, how can we perform our Christian duties of brotherly love, hospitality, and sympathy rightly as God intended for us to do? How can our mind be on others? It can't be, right? And it won't be. Our mind's attention, our energy and effort, our heart's desire is not on others, nor upon pleasing the Lord, but upon ourselves. In our discontentment with our life, it is upon our own displeasure and unhappiness. Taking the sin of discontentment even a step further, when we are discontent, we violate the two great commandments that Jesus gave to us. In Mark 12, verses thirty two thirty one. 31 the Bible says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength, everything we are. This is the first commandment, and the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment Greater than these. This may seem like a bold or a rash statement, however, I'm confident that our study over the next couple of sessions will bear this out. When we are discontent, our heart has been stolen away from loving God and loving others. The sin of discontentment is all too common in the lives of God's people and is responsible for causing us great misery. Lou Priola, biblical counselor and author, states in his book on discontentment that many people who have sought his advice for a wide variety of problems. Did you get that? A wide variety of problems in our life. Unknowingly struggle with discontentment. Interestingly enough, when we go to our Bibles to find out what God says about discontentment, as we should with all our counseling inquiries, we will not find a single reference to discontentment. Such an important topic. How could that be? Is it because God's people never get discontent? No. We only find references to contentment. So what is the biblical opposite to contentment if it's not discontentment? covetousness covetousness it is covetousness that sows the seeds of discontentment with our present condition causing us to be unhappy the bible repeatedly warns us about the sin of covetousness throughout the bible in the old and new testaments in hebrews 13 5 which we read here in our our text reading hebrews 13 5 the bible says let your conversation Now, this is the King's English, so we think, okay, words that we say. But that's not at all what this is talking about. This is talking about our entire conduct, our manner of life. Let your conversation or conduct be without covetousness, and be content, be satisfied. And when you're satisfied, that means you're what? Happy. Happy. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. Present things. Things that you already possess. For he has said, that is the Lord has said by way of a promise. The Lord's not just stating something here. He's promising something. And what is that promise? It's a significant promise. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The Lord is all we need. If we have his presence, if we have his blessing, if we have his graces and tender care, we have everything with nothing deficient or lacking. But do we really believe this? We struggle with this, right? And hence we have discontentment in our hearts and in our lives. Covetousness, what is covetousness? Let's define it. Covetousness is an inordinate desire, which means an excessive, immoderate desire to possess or have something that God has not seen fit to give us, that God has not appointed for us to have, at least not yet. It may be covetousness over material possessions, property, or wealth, living a more comfortable, luxurious lifestyle, but it could also be non-material things. For example, desiring to be in a marital relationship or a dating relationship. Now before I go on, nothing's wrong with desiring to be married or in 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 a dating relationship, but what we're talking about here is more than just a desire. We're talking about an inordinate desire, well, what do I mean by that? I mean a desire so much so, so that you'll sin against God in order to satisfy that desire and get what you want. Like a Christian dating someone who's unsaved. I want to be married so bad. This is just an example, but it's an obvious one. It's one that, unfortunately, I've seen in our church like happen again and again and again and again. Well, what is that? It's covetousness. It's an inordinate desire to get what you want. I'm going to have what I want satisfied whether I do things God's way or not. Right? I'm going to have satisfaction. I am going to be pleased. I, I, I. By the way, what does that sound like? Idolatry. We, and that's where covetousness ultimately leads, doesn't it? You are your own God. Not God. You've dethroned God from your life. You've, thrown, you've dethroned God from your heart, amen? So I said, first of all, we were talking about non-material things, right? How We could covet those things too. So we already talked about being in a marriage relationship or a dating relationship. That's kind of a popular one, right? Most of us desire that. To have a specific job or career. Well, I'm just not going to go to church on Sundays because I've got to have this job. I've got to have this career. Do you not think all of us here have had choices in our life to work on Sundays, but we've opted not to do it, to obey the Lord, to be in his house. If Hopefully this is challenging you to some degree and all I ask is that you to think about these things, pray about these things, study about these things. So a specific job or career, what else? Accomplishing a certain achievement or pursuit. You know, the Olympics just passed. You know, you think of, uh, who was that Christian track uh, guy who, uh, he? do you know, Pops, what were you going to say? It's like the early turn of the century, and he he wouldn't compete in his major event, right? Because uh, Lindell or something like that? And uh, he would not compete in his main event because it was on Sunday. He said no, and he competed in some other event on Saturday, still won a gold, Though not guaranteed, but it was in his non event. So sometimes it's just the things that we desire to achieve in life, right? The things that we desire to pursue, we want to kind of do an in run around God, right? And what is that? That's covetousness. That's where our desires are not aligned with God's. So, accomplishing an achievement or pursuit, acquiring a particular level of academic education. Sometimes it's education. We tend to worship education. We do. It's like if we don't have a certain level of education, our life is over. We worship at that idol all too often. Nothing's wrong, nothing's unbiblical with getting an education, but don't sin against God. Don't sin against God to get it. Many people in this room, I'm sure, are educated. I'm educated. But don't sin against God to get it. What else? Obtaining a specific lifestyle, maybe it's leisure, like you want to retire early, or maybe you don't want to work so hard, right? Uh, maybe a certain level of status, or power, or prestige, or notoriety, or fame, whatever it is. Instead of being discontent, we are to be satisfied and pleased with our present state and present things. You ever heard the expression, living in daytight compartments? There's a Dale uh, Carnegie book that he wrote. It was entitled, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. And that's what he emphasizes, to not worry, right? Is to live in daytime compartments. Don't think about tomorrow, right? Just live in today. And that is biblical thinking, because the Bible doesn't promise that we'll have another day, does it? Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. So today is sufficient, Right? We must bring our mind to rest in our present condition. There's, um, I, I like this saying as far as living in daytight compartments, and it helps me to, to think about that. Um, how God gives us today what we need each day. Or God gives us today what we need day to day. And God does. God gives us what we need. And of course, he gives us much more than that, especially here in America. But we must bring our mind to rest in our present condition. What do I mean by rest? Where we're not anxious about where we're at. Where we have peace where we're at in our minds, our hearts and minds. Paul learned to do that. Paul learned to be Content in whatsoever state he was in. Philippians 4.11 says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state, in other words, in whatsoever condition, I am therewith to be content. But God needed to teach Paul this. He had to learn this, just like we have to learn it, right? God needed to teach Paul the priceless lesson of contentment. Just as we need to be taught this principle from the Word of God by the Spirit of God. Ask God to teach you contentment. When we covet, we become more and more discontent with our present circumstances and more and more forgetful of just how, God, how much God has blessed us and continues to bless us. God is so good, is He not? Romans 8, 28-32 And we know... Glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? What a great verse, right? If God be for us, who can be against us? That's one of those things that you put on your vanity mirror or in your car or just somewhere in your computer desk to always remind you, right? If God be for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him, with Jesus Christ, also freely give us all things? All spiritual things, all temporal things that our that loving, sovereign Father has determined are needful and suitable for us to have. Covetous thoughts and desires originate from our sinful, corrupted nature, from original sin. Therefore, they are naturally occurring within us and often spring up quickly and unexpectedly. Have you ever been surprised by a desire that just seemed to come up from nowhere? It's our sin nature, it's our original sin. These naturally occurring sinful thoughts and desires are stirred up and excited when we take delight in them, when we take pleasure to dwell upon them, allowing them to take root and get a foothold in our lives, to grow and blossom into full-blown lust. Mark 7, 21-23 says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts. What's on that list? Covetousness. Wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile the man, rendering man spiritually unclean and unfit for fellowship with the thrice holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Covetousness man itself by an uneasiness or inquietude of mind, a lack of peace, arising from the desire to receive gratification of covetous lusts, or an anxiousness attended with dissatisfaction and discontentment with present circumstances, disappointed hopes, dreams, wishes, ambitions, expectations, and our future expectations. There is a distinctive difference between desiring to improve yourself or your economic situation by pursuing an education, vocational or professional trainer or a better job, and being so dissatisfied you are willing to sin against God by coveting and possibly acting upon that covetousness in order to please your desires. Whenever we indulge ourselves to sin, we do it at the expense of God's glory in our own detriment. And unfortunately, I think we need to stop right there, even though I have a lot more to go, but we'll get... To that next time, right? People are, yeah, please. Uh, all right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this study on covetousness. It's, we probably don't talk about it enough in our society, as affluent as we are. It's a bigger problem, I think, than we suspect in our lives and robs us of much, hap- much happiness, much contentment that, you would have us to have. And so we just pray that you'd help us to go to your word and help us to submit to your spirit and be led of you and help us to place our, our confidence in you and our contentment and our happiness in you and help us to find, help us to find all these things in, in you and in the word of God that our life would truly honor you and glorify you. And we just thank you and we praise you for this time to study your word together as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.